You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 26, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Eowyn Alstrom, a longtime mindfulness, yoga, and massage therapy practitioner and teacher. She's the founder of Middle Path Healing Arts and a teacher of the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction course, better known as MBSR, at the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. In today's interview, Eowyn will bring her many years of experience to bear on our discussion of the promises and the challenges of bringing traditional mindfulness education into the digital world, including her experience teaching MBSR online to students around the world. We're extremely pleased to welcome Eowyn Alstrom to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. After I finished the interview with Eowyn Alstrom that you're about to hear, Eowyn and I kept talking for a while offline, and one of the things we spoke about was the interesting fact that the format of a podcast encourages people to talk continuously, and that this is interesting to us because mindfulness practice places such a high value on silence and involves practicing being silent and experiencing silence and paying attention to our feelings and thoughts while we're silent. It made me think about where this came from. I I know people who were in radio years ago, and they talked to me about having to really learn how to keep talking continuously because it's not really, you know, a natural thing, at least for a lot of people. And it developed from the need to avoid, quote, dead time on the air because of the fear that a listener would immediately change the station if there was silence on the radio. And made me realize that I had, in in doing the podcast, been training myself unintentionally to learn how to continue to speak continuously for that same reason, to not lose listeners. So, um, I thought it would be interesting to try doing something quite different, an experiment in which we provide 20 seconds of silence. <laughs> and it's a bit scary for me because I don't know whether any of you are going to tune out or listen to something else and not come back. Um, I don't know what it's going to feel like. I don't know how people will respond to it. So I'd like to ask you, see if you can stick with us during the silence and use it as an experiment for yourself to see what it feels like to, quote, listen to silence in a podcast. So I'm going to set a timer here, and we're going to try out 20 seconds of podcast silence starting now. All right, that was 20 seconds of silence. I wonder what it felt like for you. For me, definitely scary. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to be received. It's unusual. I don't think I've heard it done before, but 
if you want to share your own experience with, you know, listening to 20 seconds of silence on a podcast, you know, how that felt, uh, use it to meditate or maybe to do something else, <laughs> share whatever your experience may have been with us. And uh, now I hope you enjoy the upcoming non-silent interview with Eowyn Alstrom. Hi, Eowyn. Welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. Hi, Robert. Nice, nice. I won't say nice to hear you. Uh, nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, as you know, uh, one of the strange things about the podcast is that although you and I are in the same town right now, I had told you it's best for <laughs> audio purposes for us to each be at our own computer remotely from each other. <laughs> so it's kind of telling. Right. It's, it's technology in action. It is. It is. And that's, you know, the first thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and this is something you and I have talked about a number of times live in person, was the relationship of of technology to the way in which mindfulness is taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- mindfulness is something that traditionally was taught very much in person and and transmitted down from person to person in person. And you as a mindfulness teacher have experienced that and are very much involved in a lot of the work and experimentation that's going on now to try to make use of computer technology and online media Mm. for teaching mindfulness. So I'm sure we could spend a whole hour talking about that because it's a big topic, but maybe you could start by talking a little bit about your your background as a teacher in the pre-technology days, and then how that transition and experiment with going online um, is working and what some of the promises and challenges of it are. Mm. This is a huge topic. Um, yeah, it's it, we're living in very interesting times. I understand that's actually a, a in Chinese, a curse. May may you live in interesting <laughs> times. <laughs> I think we do. Uh, so it's true that I started teaching before I started teaching online. Um, and that I was, am, you know, first a yoga teacher and then uh, trained uh, as a mindfulness teacher. I teach at the, the Center for Mindfulness at the University of Massachusetts. So I teach MBSR and other mindfulness programs. Uh, there. And I continue to teach yoga, which is also, by the way, uh, being more and more offered online. I just got an invitation to a a live online yoga class, the first one I've seen. Hmm. Previously, they've been recorded, right? So part of this topic maybe is about um, the very recent shift from recorded online offerings, which is one thing, to live encounters online and endeavoring to teach that way. Uh, But part of it also is maybe about embodiment and and how and whether being in the same room together matters or doesn't matter to teaching this kind of, um, this kind of practice. Yeah. So uh, there are lots of big questions here. Lots of big, it's just been in the last three years that, we at the Center for Mindfulness have started offering live online MBSR classes. And that's been, oh gosh, it's been fascinating to me 
to to do that. On the one hand, uh, just this last cycle, which ended for me last Tuesday, I had eight weeks online with a community of people, included folks from South Africa, Cairo, Spain, Uruguay, the United States, Canada, and that's just a, a handful. Switzerland, you know, I, I could go on. Uh, there were 30 plus people in the class, you know, and we were uh, together in the sense that we were live uh, and, and talking to one another. You know, it's not a webinar format. So this, uh, my goodness, uh, very beautiful in some ways, very, very beautiful, the opportunity to connect with people from around the world and share um, share interest in practicing mindfulness and actually do practices together. You know, I guide meditations, I guide yoga practices in the online um, conference room. So that's, that. it's amazing. And on the other hand, <laughs> I can tell you that the challenges are, um, I do really feel like being in a room with somebody is different, physically in a room with somebody is different than being online. Even right now, you know, you and I have sat together in my office fairly frequently, right. you know. You sit in one comfortable chair, I sit in another, and we talk. Yeah, <laughs> and this, there's, there's, uh, so maybe I'll put it this way and and tie it into something really ancient. You know, the the Buddha uh, described human experience as having uh, six sense bases, and they're basically the five normal ones that you're used to hearing about: seeing, hearing, tasting smelling, and then the body, which is more than just touching with your fingers. It's everything to do with the senses of the body, you know, the, the whole entire ability to feel, including, for example, being able to feel when your hand is behind you, even though you can't see it and it's not touching anything else, right? So interoception and proprioception and all of that would be included in the body as one of the senses. And then the sixth sense, the mind, you know, so the ability to think uh, and, uh, and feel and know cognitively. So when we're in a room together, Robert, you know, we share the same soundscape. We share the same visual scape. Yeah. When we're online, I have the right now we don't have visual at all. So my visual field and yours are completely separated. Mm. Uh, and uh, you you ha we have the ability to control to some degree how much our soundscapes interact based on muting and unmuting and what microphones we use and, you know, <laughs> which we were playing around with at the beginning, you know, what's the best quality sound we can get, you know? So there's a, uh, there's a mediation of the, of the senses in the online environment that is, it's very different from what happens when we come together physically in a room. It's very interesting. I, I think that when, People talk about online education of any kind. We often talk about whether there's a video component of it. Is the student seeing something uh, or is it just audio? Uh, but you mentioned something different, which is, are we both 
seeing and hearing the same thing as each other mm. at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Actually, maybe when we're sitting in the same room together, we're not either, you know, because each of mm. us is perceiving through our own mental lenses. You know, I might be much more interested, for example, in color than you are or vice versa. And so I might see more color than you do or vice versa, you know. So in some way, we're probably never sharing um, completely. Uh, but we have access to the same space in some way uh, when we're together physically. I don't know. This is kind of mind blowing to me. Just, uh, just starting to recognize this. And and I've. It's interesting. One of the things I do in class, and you can try it right now if you want. Are you sitting at a computer screen, Robert? I am. Yeah. So just for a minute. Uh, widen your visual field so that the computer becomes part of what you're looking at instead of the main thing. Maybe you weren't even mainly looking at it to start with, you know, but, you know, just uh, often when we're in the video conference environment, people, they come right into the screen, you know, and they're looking at all the squares of other people and they forget about the field of sight around, around the computer screen. Yeah. So, uh, it can be fun to play with how, with the, the place that the device is taking in the, in the visual field, uh, in, your mi- in your mind in some way as well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, just to be totally honest and transparent, I was both looking only at the screen. Once you asked me to step back, I noticed I was physically hunched over. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mostly focused on the audio levels that I can see scrolling by me in the software I'm using to record the podcast. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. So there was a part of, part of my mind that was also focused on hmm, how well is the recording going of what we're saying, in addition to being focused on the actual conversation. That's, of course, completely different than it would be if we were sitting in your office. Yes, very different. Yeah. So, and so that's, are you still there? My screen just went dark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm still here and we can, we can either edit that out or not because this right? all relates to no, it really <laughs> what does. technology introduces into the live interaction. <laughs> yeah, it really does, Robert. So I must have a setting on my computer, you know, that, that uh, has it go to sleep or something. It has a screen go to sleep after a certain number of minutes that I haven't touched the keyboard, right? And that just happened. So, it, it, um, yeah, this is, it, it, we're in it already. The, the game-changing nature of introducing technology into our lives. Now, that's been a long, slow process that you probably know more about than I do, you know, um, the development of technologies, in, historically speaking, which seems to be gaining speed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also the what I think you're really interested in in the podcast, which is how that relates to uh, something that is a vast world of its own, uh, historical and contemporary, flowing one from the other, mindfulness practices as they've been um, engaged in by human beings for a long time. Um, And this is uh, the, the introduction of technology to that is just, it's a, it's a game changer as people like to say it, it shifts everything in some way. And maybe what's interesting is it has, it, it, if we're not paying attention, it can shift things in ways that we don't notice. Mm. 
Now, you were saying to me when we were prepping for this that it turns out we're not really very good at predicting long-term effects of our exciting new ideas. <laughs> Is that, did right. I understand you rightly? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're usually not very good. I think from my study of the history of technology and from being a user and developer of it for a long time, our tendency is to focus on whatever the latest, coolest features of the technology are. Uh, the fact that it can show live video of someone else uh, in real time. We focus in, tend to focus in very narrowly on those features and what their direct effects would be. And then we often individually and culturally do some, what I'd call a naive or simple-minded extrapolation from that, uh, as if there'll be no other side effects of it. Uh, and we tend to then be surprised, either surprised by the side effects when they occur, or as you said, not really pay attention to them. They occur, but they go into the background. Uh, mm. I, for an example would be, uh, constant connectivity was something that I think a lot of people didn't predict the ability to, uh, but by constant connectivity, I mean, the ability to be connected to the internet all mm. the time, anywhere you are. Uh, at very low cost, that this could lead to people actually feeling less connected relationally or socially to each other. All the predictions, or almost all of them, early on was this was going to help people connect connect in what we in the way we normally use that term, form stronger personal bonds with each other. And we now know that that can be true, uh, but isn't necessarily true. It's not an automatic consequence of better, more frequent, easier technological connectivity. So there's many effects like that. And you know, I'm sure that at the Center for Mindfulness, uh, you must, everyone there must be applying mindfulness even to the planning of how to uh, change the delivery of, I don't even want to call it delivery necessarily, but you know what I mean, how the courses are structured and formatted and the kinds of media they're delivered through. I wonder if you could even talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the the process that's gone into thinking through that uh, and what noticing there's been as you've tried different iterations of the delivery of, let's just say, MBSR. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. But first, I want to go back a little ways, because mm -hmm. it seems to me you named one really interesting, unsuspected, um, oh, call it a drawback of mm -hmm. connectivity, connectivity, you know, that it doesn't necessarily connect us. It, I want to say also that from my experience, it seems like there may be a health uh, health risks associated <laughs> with a lot of technology use that are still maybe quite unidentified, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is really interesting because it seems like that might relate to what you were saying about we see the features, you know, we, we're just seeing the features, we're seeing the um, the magic, so to speak. There's a great quote, I like to watch TV, Robert. <laughs> and, uh, I, I try to be disciplined about it. I don't, you know, I choose things. I avoid commercials. I, um, I treat it actually the way I treat most technology with caution, <laughs> mm -hmm. with a recognition that, you know, there are, there are health risks involved. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I recently, uh, spent some time quite enjoying a show that's, um, 
probably um, the target audience is probably like, you know, adolescent girls. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> it was a show called Once Upon a Time. You know, it's okay. a, fa- a fantasy thing. Yeah. And in the show, there's a magician and he, he's kind of a evil, good magician and uh, has one of those laughs that you might expect from an evil, good magician. And he says repeatedly throughout six seasons of the show to anyone who will listen, he says, magic always comes with a price, dearie. <laughs> you know? And it's, you know, I think it's quite wonderful, actually, for me to think about the audience of this program getting that message again and again, because technology really, you know, we like, we talk about science, yeah? But there is a magical quality to all of this, you know? There's a magical quality. We know how it's happening, you know? And that's actually how magic becomes accessible, is when we can understand how to change, uh, how, how to apply a law we didn't understand before, you know? So, uh, um, yeah. Anyway, I'm taking this in a direction you weren't steering me. That's okay. It, that's the, that that's fine. Uh, it's I mean, really interesting to me. I think magic comes with a price. Technology comes with a price. Yeah, and it's really helpful to be aware of it. What the prices are. Right. I mean, if you think of it from the perspective of mindfulness, just to see it for what it really is. If we if we're focused on the features, I mean, those are real and true. Uh, yeah. not to ignore them or discount them and to see just to throw technology out in the in the garbage, but to see the complete set of features that it really has, mm. positive, negative, neutral, as we say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, culturally, I, I often see, I mean, one of the worlds I live in, in the world of high-tech startups and entrepreneurs, uh, for many years, I would say, Overall, the view was very lopsided towards what I call cheerleading, you know, really mm. seeing almost only the positive features of technology. Mm. Um, and uh, what we're talking about is if you step back and are able to try, we can't eliminate all of our lenses, but <laughs> try to try to see see the lenses or filters we have for what they are. I mean, maybe we'll be able to see some of the positives and negatives in a more realistic light well that's that's really interesting the you know the mention in some way of our blind spots and and how you know subjective bias is a a well-known phenomenon we all have it yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so the question how do we uh, start to see our own filters and then actually work with what's happening to incline our situation personally, socially, culturally, globally, uh, in a direction that is um, more likely to produce well-being, mm-hmm. yeah, and less likely to produce suffering. So the application of mindfulness in the situation of technology um, has potential there, I think. I know from my own experience. Yeah, I know something just occurred to me, which is now going in a very different direction. But I just wonder what your thoughts on it are, uh, which is when we talk about seeing the positives and negatives of technology, I think about in my own direct experience of technology. It can create a lot of immediate pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just use the term well-being mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, Lots of experiences of immediate pleasure, you know, uh, 
going on Facebook or reading a news article or email or whatever your own thing is that brings you those hits of immediate pleasure may not contribute to your long-term well-being. That's correct. (laughs) 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 And may, in fact, contribute to your long-term (laughs) dis-ease. So that's sobering. (laughs) Yes. So I don't know if you could talk either from your own experience as a practitioner or as a teacher, is there, you know, have you found any ways to address that or help people see, you know, notice that more in themselves and integrate it into their lives, specifically in connection with use of technology, which can so powerfully produce pleasure in the short term? Yeah, yeah. There's, a, I think there's a few things. Some, you know, gosh, I could talk for a long time. I just wrote, <laughs> I just wrote a short blog post for uh, CFM Home, which is the Center for Mindfulness's online community, right? Called Embodied Computing. <laughs> 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 and for me, as a practitioner, and people are, you know, of great variety and what works for them, and that maybe is also part of. Uh, what's challenging for us as human beings. We don't all necessarily need or respond to the same things. But for me as a mindfulness practitioner um, and a yoga practitioner, embodiment is tremendously helpful in all ways. And it's interesting because as much as technology tends to support, tends to support disembodiment, uh, practicing uh, being in the body and with the body I mean, my own and, and you know, uh, mm-hmm. what's here, but also like the chair is a body that the computer itself, the metal and plastic of it is a body. Mm-hmm. Um, the physicality, the materiality of the world, which um, uh, often we disconnect from when we engage with technology can be a resource for navigating some of the potential pitfalls, right? So if I um sit down to work on a piece of writing which is something i do fairly often and i do it on the computer um if i set the intention to pay attention to my body while i work uh then uh, you know i might lose track of my body dozens of times in the process mm. of working but every time i remember that i have that intention i i reconnect And there's an opportunity there, you know, Mm. an opportunity Mm -hmm. to, oh, I don't know, roll my shoulders, you know, right? Stand up, walk around. You know, part of what I was writing about in the post is that I noticed that when I commit to that as a practice, uh, well, a couple of things. One, um, I'm less likely to get uh, over-focused on the project. Uh, but two, I find the work actually tends to go easier and feel less stressful overall if I if I practice in that way. And this maybe relates to actually where you were wanting to go a while ago, Robert, which is, you know, what am I seeing about um, teaching in the online environment? Um, it's similar. I find that if I make the technology a conscious part of what's happening in the teaching and learning process, that's helpful. Yeah. If I let the technology fall into the unconscious background, the way you were so clearly describing, you know, that it, mm-hmm. you know, you, you're doing something and you don't even know you're doing it and, and you're doing it through technology. Yeah. Then, uh, 
then subjective bias and habits tend to rule the day and, and get stronger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if I include it, you know, if I if I can tolerate the fact that right now as I'm talking to you, the earbuds feel a little weird, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, then uh, that helps me to actually have a, the opportunity to choose things that are going to support well-being rather than just choosing short-term pleasures that will lead to long-term suffering. Yeah. Mm. And are you saying that you will, does this change in any way how you're teaching that you, when you're teaching, let's say uh, MBSR online, part of Mm -hmm. what you'll do is have students pay, step back and pay some attention to the, to their computer or smartphone or whatever they're using to connect to the course? Yes, I do. I do. I suggest that they, uh, um, for example, step away and do some walking meditation practice, you know, then their screen can keep doing what it's doing, but they can look around the room and feel their feet on the floor and uh, this kind of thing. Really helpful, you know. And it makes me think about, so I was your MBSR student uh, and we, when I took the course, it was the old in-person version Ah, don't call it old. <laughs> <laughs> Original. <laughs> it's only 40. It's not even 40 yet. Next year, I think. <laughs> in in uh, human terms, that's this is still, you know, 40 is the new 30. <laughs> that's right. Okay, sorry. The, the original, just... yeah, original in-person version of it. And we, from what I remember, I think we just put our phones away and there was no computer technology involved in the in-person sessions at all. Yeah, I think that's right, Robert. And I don't think, and I, we don't use PowerPoint presentations and we don't, you know, uh, and that partly is a historical phenomena. MBSR is a specific curriculum that was developed at a specific time when specific technologies were available. And because we're interested in um, researching MBSR, there's been a strong uh, push to maintain the fidelity of that particular form, you know, which is quite wonderful for other reasons uh, than than the need to research it, you know, or the interest in researching it. I mean, that for me raises a whole other topic, which is closely related of this tension between, I really like the term you use, retaining the fidelity of the original form on the one hand, and making the teachings applicable to people in the lives that they're living now. Yeah, this is huge. <laughs> I mean, and this <laughs> this is something that applies. So, you know, um, MBSR mindfulness as pioneered in America and the world by John Kabat-Zinn uh, is only 40 years old, you know, so and and already we're challenged to, you know, to adapt it to the online environment. But you've also got teachers, as I said, I just got an invitation to an online live yoga class and uh, have many uh, colleagues teaching in the Buddhist circles who are teaching online. So there's a, um, those traditions are 2,600 years old and they have changed, they have evolved, they have, you know, grown and flowered and withered and been renewed many, many, many times uh, in many different cultures. And, you know, that process continues and will continue. You might say MBSR is part of that process. Um, yes. 
taking threads both from the Hatha Yoga tradition and from the uh, Zen and Vipassana traditions and developing something, to use your words, that was applicable to people uh, living in 21st century or late 20th century um, contemporary cultures. And that's interesting because that, it has such global appeal. Uh, so that's, yeah, that, that's a whole emerging, emerging is the word that we use. The other <laughs> word that gets used so often these days is complexity. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So what are, what are you finding? I mean, obviously it seems like uh, at Center for Mindfulness, there is some decision being made to not replace the original version, but perhaps supplement it with modifications that involve the use of technology to deliver the material. Mm. Uh, Well, there's definitely, there's an exploration. uh, And that exploration, first of all, just to say, I I don't want to be misconstrued as a spokesperson for the Center for Mindfulness in this podcast. That's not, that's not my, um, that's not where I'm coming from. And I think I would say there's an exploration, there's an investigation, there's a a holding, Robert, of the question that you put forth. Um, you know, how how do we uh, honor, respect, maintain, value uh, historical forms, and how do we respond you know that's a big piece of the mbsr ethos of responsivity to what's actually arising uh, as as opposed to or um in place of reactivity yeah mm-hmm. uh, there's so much in the technological sphere that seems to um inspire reactivity you know uh, and so it, it feels to me like it would be in some ways hmm, we we'd be foolish not to apply the methods of responsivity that mindfulness offers in the realm of of technology Mm -hmm. you know and it's happening it's happening so there's that too and you 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 mentioned you use the word universal before and that's also always a challenge and uh (laughs) tension between recognizing what is it in these practices that cuts across culture and time and place even, and is universal or feels like it can be universal or at least seems like is applicable to many places. I mean, it's kind of amazing that things that Tibetan monks learned 2,000 years ago are still really useful to us here in the U.S. right in 2018, and yet there's a real truth there. Um I mean, I, I don't know the answer to this, uh, but yet, yet it's, it does seem like there can be value in adapting perhaps how, how some of those universal truths are taught or the techniques that are applied to, 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 to convey them that are more in reach people more where they are now. Yeah. So let's be clear. I'm, I'm not a scholar of, um, uh, I'm not a I'm not a I'm not an, a, a scholar of the history of Buddhism or yoga or mindfulness or you know this is not my the history piece isn't my field and I can say with confidence that 
uh, it's always been evolving and being adapted, you know, and, and I just a cursory understanding, for example, of the difference between, um, Theravada Buddhism as it's understood in Thailand and Burma, you know, right now and Tibetan Buddhism as it's mm -hmm. understood right now, uh, indicates that there was a lot of evolution and change through cultural forces, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that's been happening. That's been happening. It's been happening in the yoga tradition uh, as well. I I don't have a, a citation for it, uh, Robert, but somebody told me that the term Buddhism actually didn't arise until, I don't know, the 17th or 18th century when mm. Westerners went east and started languaging the teaching <laughs> for western minds right because mm -hmm. that you know isms uh, that that way of speaking about things is a kind of a western uh mode of thought as i understand it yeah it's interesting and i, I you know i've had more of a background and experience in, in martial arts or longer than in sitting meditation it's the same thing in in martial arts until fairly recently, historically, the names of different martial arts and styles were usually very specific. They were like the name of the town in which it was taught or the teacher. Nahate would be the hand of the Naha region. There wasn't a more a broader ism that was applied to that teaching. It was very specific. And it was only later when there was an attempt uh, not just in the U.S., but in Japan, to nationalize mm. or apply the teachings across the country and make it uh, something that uh, could be taught in schools nationwide that people started to come up. And this is only the last hundred years, really, mm. come up with these broader terms. That's fascinating. It's really interesting. And, uh, you know, in a way, Robert, technology right, is what's making that possible. Yeah. Hello? Oh, no, you're gone. So, I, I just have to laugh at what just happened. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Whether you edit it out or keep it in is up to you, but it's just such a really um, great example of the relationship between human beings and technology and how... I, it feels to me like how much more challenging it can be for humans than it is for the technology <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and and how important it is that somehow we learn to navigate it in, in ways that um, that are healthy, you know. Yeah, if, if we if this does end up getting edited for people listening, what happened is we were both speaking and then all of the audio went dead. And we spent a few minutes trying to figure out what it was. And I basically restarted the uh, recording. Yeah, I mean, one way I see it is just an example of how uh, is the word opaque or mysterious <laughs> the technology can be. And, you know, often it's out of our, con it feels out of our control. It's also, um, What's the word? Disconcerting. We we lost track of where we had been in the conversation uh, in a way that we wouldn't have if we were sitting next to each other in a room. That's really interesting, Robert. I also got this warning, this health this health check warning, which I find to be absolutely hysterical. You know, but in terms of the point that it 
it in some way it broke our continuity. I yes. just for me with um applying my practice of wakefulness in relationship with technology, one of the um most interesting aspects has been is continues to be even in this example, Robert, uh, um how do I stay present with rapidly changing objects. Yeah. So mm -hmm. one minute I'm in a conversation with you deep in that conversation and instantaneously the, the, the object of my attention has changed from our conversation to the recognition that we're not connected anymore and the process right. of trying to um, address that. Yeah. So how do I not get knocked out of my seat, so to speak? Right. Uh, in terms of being connected in my life. And that, you know, that right there could form the basis of a lot of practice that might help people with their relationships with mindful, uh, with uh, technology. Yeah, I mean, I, I one thing I've struggled with, I think I've had some improvement, was the feeling when something like that happens, yeah. that technology stops working or doesn't work the way I want it want it to, uh, the feeling, I call it victimhood, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the pain of the fact that it's not doing what I want it to do. And then it, maybe it's a kind of second arrow. Oh no. Why is it doing this to me? Why does this happen to me so often? And telling that story to yeah. myself about uh, about what's just happened. Right, or why am I not better with technology? I'm so inept. I've never yes. been able to master it. I'm never going to be, oh, uh, you know, I'm getting old, you know. <laughs> 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 or just the um, the physiological kind of stress reactivity, you know, the shoulders lift yes, up yes. and the sense angry at the technology is another possibility, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of, um reactions that happen in you know with with technology not working the way we think it will and that's that's to me fascinating uh was one of the um one of the positives that we thought was going to be true about technology as you understand it that it would be uh effective in increasing our uh, our speed and our ability to do things and and does that seem to have panned out you know that's a <laughs> right i don't know yeah I, I think it's interesting i know that in the business world right there were promises made from the 1960s <laughs> but it is certainly 1970s that increasing introducing computers into the workplace was going to result in this incredible in, 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 uh, increase mm. in productivity. And uh, people kept being wrong about that for decades. And I think that uh, if I'm right, when it eventually started to be true, uh, first of all, it took many decades longer than anyone had predicted. The increases in productivity were mm. much smaller than people had predicted. And uh, sometimes they were the result of just um, eliminating jobs, not because they act, not because computers make an individual person more productive, but because the business, by being able to reduce the number of employees, makes the business as a whole more productive, not an individual person. Mm -hmm. And the last thing is, this was, you know, uh, maybe it was un unexpected, is that, uh, and this relates to our individual experience with technology. When businesses 
are frequently updating yeah. the technology, the amount of time and effort that people have to go to to relearn how to use it, then to learn how to use the next version can cancel out any productivity wow, increases. So are you familiar with that expression, you know, um, um, know where you're going? Because if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there, you know. Uh, that's right. so if we're not very good at actually knowing where we're going, you know, we think we're going to greater productivity. We think we're going to greater pleasure. We think we're going to, and, and we're incorrect. Uh, uh, then that, <laughs> you know, that's a bit of a challenge for us. Yeah. It's a challenge. And then I think I've been amazed when I've spoken to people. In fact, I just had a conversation with someone recently who was very sophisticated using technology. The person was an engineer and said that they're still using some very old version of Windows. They have an old computer. They haven't updated in years. Uh, they use it for writing mostly. I don't think it gets connected mm. to the internet at all. And they had made a conscious choice mm. at one point that they would rather keep using this computer that worked, <laughs> that they knew how it worked. Uh, they weren't going to break it by installing a new version of the operating system. And they didn't want to put so much of their mm -hmm. life energy into updating this thing all the time and learning how to use new pieces of software. I thought that's a really good application of mindfulness. I don't think this person was a quote, mindfulness practitioner, but I thought there was yeah. a lot of wisdom. Yeah, well, you know, the values of contemplative practice as expressed in the Buddhist traditions and the yoga tradition, and I'm sure in many other cultural traditions that I just don't happen to be aware of, are fairly timeless. You know, they are things like simplicity, you know, con contemplation, mm -hmm. um, respect for nature, you know, um, Wisdom is one that you, you know, all of those are marks of wisdom in some ways. And it does at times look like technology is simply being harnessed in service of uh, greed, uh -huh, in service mm -hmm. of um, delusion. So I too, you know, I, for example, take at least a month a year when I don't have my, I have no devices, you know, I turn them off. And I remember saying to you, I was so happy when I realized that the advent of the smartphone was occurring after I had established a habit of having a month or so of silent retreat each year. Yes. Because I had already in place the habits, the structures in my personality and my life that supported not getting sucked into the addictive um, quality of cell phones. And I watched lots of younger people around me and even people in my own generation around me just get sucked right in to the point where they'll say very openly, yes, I'm totally addicted to my cell phone, you know, and, and that's having consequences, you know, having effects in their lives. Yeah, I wonder how you approach people then who you're teaching mindfulness, let's say who don't have that foundation, whether because they're young enough or for whatever reason, uh, they are, let's say, addicted to their smartphone uh, or just suffering consequences of it. And they are doing that without having first developed that foundation in mindfulness mm -hmm. practice that you have. Uh, do you find yourself 
taking a different approach with them than you might with someone who had that foundation first? Mm, that's an interesting question. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure that I do take a different approach mm -hmm. uh, because the, well, in a way, the essence of the approach is always the same. You know, I mean, Sharon Salzberg, who's a teacher of mine and a dear friend, I've known her a long time, uh, will sometimes say that, you know, all she would wait for the the esoteric teachings, you know, the real teachings. And, and always the instruction from the Asian masters would be notice your breath <laughs> and endlessly waiting for mm -hmm. some new, exciting, mm -hmm. um, you know, method or technique. <laughs> um, but from, from the pith of it, from the essence of it, there, there really, there is only one instruction, which is pay attention, <laughs> you know, <laughs> be present, be here, be in your life, you know, and really, you know, Larry Rosenberg will say it, uh, uh, differently of you know different teachers will say it differently but they're all saying the same we all say the same thing you know from that point of view there's no different approach for somebody who's addicted to technology than somebody who's addicted to you know anything and we're all addicted to something uh, you know i mean in a, in a way that's the root of our that, that's the root of our suffering is that we're um trying to squeeze pleasure out of a uh, out of stuff that can't doesn't really give us pleasure uh in the ways that we hope it will in lasting ways you know and the redirection is to understanding that we can be content and peaceful and happy with things the way they are so from that point of view there's no other instruction you know and then from the other side from the side of meeting each individual person there's always a different <laughs> you know, there's always a different instruction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. depending on the person who's who's there saying, you know, uh, whatever they're saying. Yeah. So that that the, again, this is responsivity, responsivity based on connectedness with hereness. You know, and this is why for me embodiment is such mm -hmm. a big piece of the process, and it's uh, that's. <laughs> It's not always an easy sell, you know. So, so I have broadened my my own understanding of uh, uh, embodiment a lot. You know, like giving somebody the suggestion that they might pay attention to their hands on the steering wheel is a really different thing than asking somebody to get into a headstand. You know, <laughs> but in some mm -hmm. sense, those two things are those two instructions are very much the same. It just depends on. The person presenting and what they are going to have access to, first of all, given their circumstances, what they're going to be able to do, um, and also what maybe is going to be the most helpful for them. But now this is, you know, this is, um, and now we're really into talking about um, relationships, you know, human relationships, person to person. And that's, you know, that's very much, as you said earlier, been the the mode of uh, practice, the process of the transmission of practice down through the ages. I, I suspect in all traditions, what, whatever their home has been culturally and um, in time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship. So let's say in a, an MBSR course, when I was there, there was 
well, physical relationship in space between all of us when we were there, which to me felt very powerful. Uh, you know, I was always amazed there and in any other group meditation setting. Uh, I still find it somewhat magical that I could be sitting quietly in a room with my eyes closed and with very little sound, at least no sound of other people moving and still feel the presence of the other people and feel that it affects my experience of the meditation. And I don't have any good explanation for that, but it yeah. feels real to me. Um, so that's what there's the, then there's relationship of, let's say you as a teacher to the students, there's how you interact, including uh, out before the class formally starts and after it formally ends or during breaks. You know, all of these are things which are often quite different in the online setting yeah, than offline. True. I don't know. You know, I am kind of um, outing myself here as a, a sci-fi geek, right? Because I already mentioned a TV show, but you're <laughs> reminding me of some some books that I actually listened to with my husband through, you know, audio books, which a series of sci-fi books about mm -hmm. the Bobiverse. I don't even know who the author is, but in these books, um, humanity had gotten off of Earth, you know, and they had uh, managed to get uh, some people into virtual reality, so to speak, by somehow disconnecting the mind from the mm -hmm. body and putting it into the computer. And it was very interesting. I loved the premise of the books. The the big problem for the protagonist, who was one of these, he was the original person who managed to become a computer, basically a virtual. He, he had to create a really good virtual reality for himself. And most of the people they tried to do it with had gone crazy because they couldn't stand being disembodied. It wasn't, they couldn't stand it. Mm. It wasn't psychologically possible to to be in the computer, right? So they all went nuts. <laughs> I thought this was great in terms of just, you know, some insight into the into the human condition, you know, the um, seems like yeah, I could imagine it going that way, you know, I could imagine us trying to drop these earthly forms and, you know, get our minds into the devices so that we didn't have to suffer stuff like Heaviness and lightness, you know, aging, sickness, mm -hmm. uh, the pain in the body, you know, and I could imagine it be that being really, really hard for us uh, in another way. Uh, and maybe for the reason that you described, Robert, because when you sit together in a room full of people who aren't freaking out on greed or hatred or delusion who are mm -hmm. actually just sitting around holding their minds in their bodies, you know, being aware of their breathing, uh, being aware of their thoughts as thoughts. That's a really powerful situation for us. We, our nervous systems, you know, I think, I don't know what evidence there is for this, but my, my nervous system responds to that. Right. It goes, Oh, okay. There is mm -hmm. possible safety. You know, there is possible ease. Mm -hmm. There is um, possible contentment, uh, you know, and that that's um, that uh, for me, too, Robert, has been a visceral kind of understanding, not simply a cognitive one. Yes. I mean, it, 
it we're ta- we're talking about embodiment right there are ways in which our bodies will respond and respond to signals that we may not be aware of at the conscious level but we can still feel and neither uh, you've been very humble in talking about what your background isn't in various ways and you know neither of us are neuroscientists maybe i know neuroscience has some explanations for these phenomena now and not for others maybe it'll be able to explain more of them in the future the ways in which our you know reptilian brain and other parts of our brain that we're often not as conscious of can pick up on physical signals uh, when we're in the presence of other people you know that we don't per- often perceive at a mm-hmm. higher cognitive level and what happens to that then when we're online together i i don't know <laughs> i have no clue i can't say when you described your experience of the uh, MBSR class, I smiled and felt something in my chest that I would call warmth, you know, and connectedness mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and that, yeah, that really matters to me as a human being. I, um, and that, you know, reminds me of some of the scary stuff around technology, you know, kids playing war games endlessly mm-hmm. throughout their youth uh, via computer, never feeling a moment's physical pain, you know, and, and what, what happens mm-hmm. When, mm-hmm. when we do that? Is that, does that affect our capacity to be compassionate to one another? You know, I, I again, I don't know. Um, but I do have a loving concern for the human race. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, one thing on that point I can say from my experience in martial arts training is that when martial arts are taught well and appropriately, uh, for me, it's given me a very direct, visceral appreciation of how frail the human body is, how easy it can be to inflict pain what it feels like to be on the receiving end of that because it's practiced with your own body yeah. and that of other people directly. And I, I can certainly imagine how, I don't know, playing a martial arts video game <laughs> would not convey that to you viscerally or otherwise. Uh, uh, you know, and I've spoken to people who have been in the military or police force or other situations like that, where both through the training and the actual experience, sometimes people on the outside think, oh, it must make them more violent, when in fact, many of those people, because they have felt it or uh, regrettably inflicted some of that pain on other people, know just how serious and painful it is. And it's really imbued them with Mm. humility and respect uh, for, for that pain. And it's something they don't want to do if they ever can avoid it. And I, I mean, I agree with you and I know the, the studies are all over the place mm. about video games, but it's hard for me to imagine that engaging in, in that kind of simulated violence, but mm. in a disembodied way can't have some sort of uh, negative effect on people in that regard. So, you know, I guess as always uh, in human history, there's a lot yeah. of um, uncertainty, you know, there's a lot of not knowing. <laughs> uh, 
uh, you know, what are the implications? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I say that a lot. You know, what is going to happen? Right. I don't know. <laughs> you know right? And for me, in a sense, that's um, where mindfulness and contemplative practice more broadly, you know, mindfulness is really popular at the mm-hmm. moment. And I'm very, I'm happy that it's popular because I think there's a lot of promise in that. Um, but contemplative practice in general, you know, throughout human history has had a lot to offer human beings in terms of uh, getting comfortable with uncertainty in a visceral way, you know, learning to be able to mm-hmm. exhale completely, even when you're uh, uh, very uh, in touch with the truth of uncertainty, uncertainty, you know, uh, being able to stay steady and clear uh, when you're very in touch with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. This is part of what contemplative practice, and you're describing, I would include your martial arts in that, by the way. Uh, certainly some mm-hmm. of the martial arts uh, traditions, at least, are very much geared toward that kind of uh, skills development. You know, uh, This seems really valuable uh, in our current situation. Yeah? Meaning the the high degree of uncertainty many of us are facing in in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we are always facing it, and sometimes we uh, have strategies that are more about denying it and you know stabilizing things that help us deny it. <laughs> and other times we uh, that's not so possible. And so, so yeah. So really tuning into what's. Uh, what's possible in the face of uncertainty in terms of uh, sustaining mm-hmm. our uh, sense of presence with each other and our, um, oh, you know, for me, uh, valuing valuing humanity, right? Valuing oh, human relationships and um, the potential we have to live peaceful to peacefully together uh and the potential we have to uh respect and care for each other you know that's also really a big part of the contemplative traditions it reminds me of what you said right at the beginning about uh some positive experience you've had with teaching mbsr online that you you mentioned the number of different countries and cultures mm-hmm. of people that you've just had in a course online and you know I, i'm 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 a believer and i know many people believe that one way to help break down barriers of misunderstanding or mistrust is just to encourage people to connect with each other directly as human beings in whatever form that takes across cultures regardless of without necessarily engaging in some sort of intellectual exchange. Uh, uh, and so I, I know it's very early in the game, <laughs> but, you know, have, what have your experiences been or have you received feedback from any of the students in these online courses about that aspect of it for them and whether they've noticed yeah. anything about it? You know, taking this course online with people from different cultures rather than I mean, in our the MBSR course I was in, I would have to guess everyone was coming from within 
30, 40 miles of Worcester, Massachusetts? <laughs> 100 miles anyway. You know, pe- people will travel to a, a well-respected location, you know, for, uh, yeah, so that, I mean, that's how the center has survived for 40 years is that folks have come, come from the Eastern Seaboard, right. you know, uh, to be, and, and so, okay, that's an aside. Let me answer your question. Um, yes, there has been really positive feedback from participants in the online MBSR classes that I've taught, which are only a handful. I've only been doing it for a little while here about connecting across culture. Uh, and, um, it's wonderful that the very guidelines of MBSR, while not uh, specifically aimed at diversity work or multiculturalism work, really do support, in my experience, people with wide-ranging views and opinions about life and you know how to live to be together in a space. Um, harmoniously or um, connectedly, or I'm not exactly sure what words I want to use here. Respectfully is another word. Um, Mm -hmm. And part of what, what I have seen so far, Robert, is that the, the shift away from uh, expressing opinions and views, (laughs) yeah. As a mode of connecting Mm -hmm, and communicating. mm -hmm. Yeah. And towards expressing experience, immediate embodied experience, yeah, and sharing that in a non-judgmental way with each other, yeah, is helpful. It's helpful, you know. So if I just report to you that, you know, right now my back aches a little bit and the cat is crying outside and I, I'm wondering whether uh, we're going to keep talking for another 10 minutes or end in five. You know, that's that's one kind of mode of expressing mm-hmm. myself, you know. It's a very different mode of expressing myself than um, telling you that I think cats are better than dogs, you know. <laughs> right, <laughs> and I right. like computers <laughs> and don't like people who, uh, who don't, um, you know, use them or whatever. You know, that shift uh, toward communicating about direct experience without judgments, you know, and, and agreeing that we're going to hold on judging each mm-hmm. other or, you know, we may have them internally, but we don't have to lay them on each other. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is really very powerful and interesting in the online classroom environment. And I would also just add that for me as a teacher, um, I really care about teaching and learning as a craft. Like I, I and it have been invested for a lot of years in, in learning um, the skills of teaching, you know, which aren't necessarily um, anything to do with me as a personality, you know? So for right. example, uh, learning to listen well is a skill, you know, uh, learning to, um, hold a group of people online or uh, otherwise is a, is a skill that can mm-hmm. be learned. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's developing those skills, I think, takes a lot of time and care, like anything, you know, right. like learning to play a piano or learning to be a, um, an engineer. These things take a lot of, a lot of um, 
persistence and time and things like that. So I think it's really what we've done at the center is try to translate to the online environment with some of our experienced teachers. Yeah. And I actually feel some caution around the the possibility that, you know, one of the challenges of technology, right? Mm -hmm. Folks who don't have a lot of experience with teaching could very easily hop online with the intention to do any kind of Mm-hmm. interpersonal work with other people and and do damage yeah right and that could and the technology can make that possible right because yes. anybody can put up a web page and say i want to you know i'm going to lead this or that yeah so it's i i have concerns about the degree of power that we've accessed through right. the through through technology and whether we're really really ready for it you know mm. i um i personally have frequently reflect, you know, about the responsibility that comes along with this kind of, um, with this kind of work. The responsibility towards the people you're teaching because of, because of what the, the depth of the feeling and personal experience you're perhaps tapping into or connecting within them. Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm one of my basic, um, ethical values like many people I'm sure is not to harm others and not to harm myself for that matter, which is challenging enough before you give me a computer, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and a cell phone and a car and a, you know, Uh, and so I definitely hold, um, hold those questions with a, a full heart and, uh, often, you know, we'll practice just setting intentions before I engage with technology, Mm. especially when other people are involved, you know, setting the intention to be skillful in the ways that I behave, you know. And of course, I I don't always um, live up to my intentions, but I really think it's important. Yeah, I I don't know if this would be an example of what you're talking about, you know, uh, that it's been commented on in many other contexts that interacting with people through telephone or computer, maybe because it's disembodied, can sometimes lead people not to uh, exhibit the same type of empathy or hmm. care towards the other person that they would in person. I mean, long before, I'm just thinking now, long before the computer, people talked about road rage being an example of that, right? There's a physical distance between you and the other driver. You may not even see their face. And so it'd be easier to act enraged towards them in a way you wouldn't if you were sitting next to, you know, face to face with them. And that's certainly, uh, you could say almost the whole internet is an example of that now. Um, but I, I, is that the kind of thing you're talking about making an effort to pay attention to in yourself as a teacher, maybe because the remote interaction, if you didn't pay attention, might lend itself to you not, not being as attentive to the needs of other people as you might automatically be in person? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think simply yes and um mm. there's also the matter of the fact that when if I'm online in a a video conference room with 35 other people that may also be the case for all of them. <laughs> and yeah. I'm I'm the one in the seat that is holding 
that whole group. Yeah. So my responsibility then isn't just to um, monitor and check mm-hmm. my own actions, but also to create a situation where uh, those 35 other people are also going to be respectful uh, and kind to one another. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and in a sense, you know, uh, right. Challenges as opportunities and all of that. There's a great opportunity here. Uh, yeah. Particularly when you've got people from uh, all over the world together. I mean, the, the, the class of people that I just uh, concluded the session with uh, has decided that they're all going to share their email addresses with each other <laughs> and endeavor to continue practicing together on their own, you know, and that's like, wow, you know, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, they feel supported by each other uh, and respectful of each other in ways that in the first class, when we first got together, it wasn't totally clear to me that that was going to come together. (laughs) 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 And it did. So that, you know, it's like, that's, I'm really grateful for that. Um, I I just want to pick up on a phrase you used, which I just, (laughs) which caught my ear, which was they're going to continue to practice together on their own. (laughs) (laughs) but isn't it true right and particularly it points out the the issue of of this being online in a sense we're more on our own when doing this in front of a computer but but what we're talking about is the opportunity for it to enable us to somehow make that alone practice be together in some way and we don't yet fully understand what that means to be together when we're doing it remotely. (laughs) Well, and in this, in a way, Robert, this, we're back to the, um, to the longstanding nature of mindfulness practice of contemplative practice as a word I sometimes use instead of mindfulness because it's broader Mm -hmm. and also the longstanding nature of humans as technology developers, you know, this Mm -hmm, is, mm This is always, we've always, for as long as we've had history, we've had contemplative practice and we've had technology development. And in some way, the conundrum of being alone together is the basic human conundrum. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, this is our situation. This is our situation. Well, may, maybe I'll take advantage of that to <laughs> draw yeah. this to a close. I, I think know. it's we really come full circle. I know we could spend another hour or many <laughs> hours talking about this. Uh, maybe we'll we'll talk again in person <laughs> and then come back online. Well, that would be fun, Robert. I, you know, I clearly this is um, interesting material to me and to you as well. So I, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to. Uh, to talk together about it and just totally trust you to edit out anything I said that wasn't. <laughs> yeah, we'll use the magic of technology. <laughs> okay. okay, great. Thanks so much, Ewan. I really enjoyed speaking with you. That's likewise, Robert. Take good care of yourself and I hope to see you soon in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Bye now. Bye now. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest, Eowyn Alstrom, a mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher and massage therapist, who was my teacher when I took the MBSR course at the Center for Mindfulness. You can find out more about her at middlepath-healingarts.com. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. 
Those and all other links are in the show notes. And check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast with Josh Clark, a user interface and user experience expert. We'll talk about how better UI and UX design can help to promote focus, creativity, and mindfulness.